You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Whether you're looking for a battery for your truck or batteries for your remote control or trail cameras, Interstate Batteries has you covered. You can visit your local Interstate Battery retail store or you can go to interstatebatteries.com and check out all the information on all the batteries that they offer. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. guys welcome to another habitat heroes podcast i'm your host adam keith uh matt dye is actually on vacation this week he is in texas so it's myself hosting um i'm gonna have a couple guests lined out one of them uh, both returning guests uh this week for the habitat heroes podcast we've got my brother chad keith and uh on our for love land podcast you're gonna hear mr tyler ross from north carolina join us so um couple interesting topics Uh, this one we are going to discuss all things food plots more food plots I guess kind of following up it's right in the heart of food plot season and no better person for me to talk about food plots than with my brother Chad Keith Chad thanks for coming on again well you know it's it's funny you mention it I think in all the conversations we've had on food plots and how long we have talked about food plots I don't know that I've ever been on here to talk about food plots yeah I don't think you have um Matt and I have covered a wide variety of uh, of food plots, uh, different different things with food plots. But uh, for you and I, um, it would I hate to say this because uh, it's a little bit braggy, but I hope it doesn't come across that way. But it would be kind of hard. Pre- you'd be a little bit hard pressed to find two people with longer food plot uh, a longer food plot background than you and I. Um, because of when we started and the amount of food plotting that you and I have done both together and on our own or in our own places. Um, wouldn't you agree with that? And a lot of it's, because <clears throat> when we first started, I mean, we first started, it was very little, there was very little information on food plots and a lot of false information. Yeah. I'm I mean, trying to remember. You've touched on it. You've touched on a little bit. I mean, the first few times we were planting food plots, it was, it, there wasn't a whole lot of food plotting to it. They were little small areas. They were what a lot of people get started doing. And it's kind of one of those who say it's addictive. You get started in it and start planting and you start planting more and more. I don't think there's it, been more any, any one topic more um, to cause more conflict among our family and farm than food plots. <laughs> that there is no true statement there <laughs> because the, the number of, the number of heated arguments, in the late season, over food plots getting eaten into the dirt by cows, there's there's been a number of them. And and no more. This is a big part of why we I make that comment. Um, I think I've shared it on the podcast in case I haven't or in case our people haven't heard it before. But when it comes to food plots, it is most likely one of the biggest projects. Uh, time-wise or most time spent on a farm project for a deer hunter than any other 
any other thing. We spend more well, time on food especially plots. Especially the old, the old ways of doing them. Yes. The ways that we originally started out, where we would go in, and, and of course, any time with, with the food plotting side of it where you're not consistently on the equipment, you have equipment failures. And yep. we would have tractor problems, flat tires, and then we'd go and plow the whole food plot. And then you go back and hook to the disc and disc it up all and get it flat and ready to ready to plant. And we'd plant it. And it was it's a long, long process to where what did we plant this time in two days? And way more acreage. Yes. Way more acreage. A lot more efficient, uh, all things. I mean, there was so much time <laughs> saved with this process. But the one thing that, um, you know, I'm going back to that topic or that comment. We spent more time food plotting, and we used to. Um, and, and on average, most people spend more time food plotting on their farm than any other project. Um, but yet, almost, almost 100% of the time, or I would say probably 100% of the time, food plots make up less than 5% of the ratio of total acres versus food plot acres. So I make this comparison a lot of, uh, I've just used Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan doesn't go to, didn't go to practice and focus and do 75% of his time in practice shooting fallaway jumpers in the corner because that was 5% of his shots in the total year, uh, in the total year of, uh, of the season. But yet, in a food plot world, we spend over 75% of our time focusing on the 5% of our farm. It doesn't make yep. much sense. No, I, I didn't tell you. Our, our neighbor, I talked to him the other day, and he was asking me about our food plots. And he said, what do you guys, what are your objectives on those? He's a farmer, just cattle farmer. He's like, what's yeah. your objectives on those? And I said, it's an attractant. That's, it's a hunting attractant. That's, we don't think we're supplementing the deer herd and helping them out. He's like, just checking. I was just wondering. It's like a lot of times the cattle farming and the farming side of it, they look at the food plots and people put so much effort and time into them and they kind of look at them and look down upon them. Yeah. That's funny. That is funny. I, uh, and so going back to the, the, I, I always forget, I have a hard time remembering, um, what year, cause I know we did food plots before we did trail cameras and I bought my first, I bought my first trail camera when I was 11. So I think we did food plots multiple years before that. Yeah, and so we... I'm thinking <clears throat> I was eight or nine when we planted the first food plot. So that was at least 22 to 23 years ago. I, I knew you weren't even old enough to hunt when we planted the first one. Yes. So I mean, that it... goes way, way back 22 plus years. I mean, if, if we really think about that, that, that was long before there was a – that was when you got your information or um, – I guess you got most of the information from magazine articles. Yeah, that's – I think most of everything. And a lot of it – you've touched on it before. A lot of it was false information. Stuff yeah, that I remember some of the funny ones was you never plant uh, grains with um, – you never mix your plants. So you never mix cereal grains – with brassicas and you never mix legumes with uh, grains as in wheat and oats and rye, because they try to steal nutrients from each other it's like wow now we're like we almost do nothing but plant diversity 
um, because of the benefits that they have to each for each other. So, but the the sad part of that is there is still a lot of false information in the hunting industry. Yeah, about that for on the, sure. On those same kind of lines. Yeah, there's yes. still a lot of false information misleading people. Yeah, and and so um, this podcast we've got a couple different topics to cover. We want to discuss some of our projects coming up about, um, our, I guess, um, our techniques and our trials and um, tests that we're doing on some of our food plots to cover some of the hot topics out there today, which is food plotting without herbicide. And then I also want to discuss um, some of our past plantings as well as... Um, our follow-up, it would be unfair for us to talk about the Legacy Blend planted last fall and talk about it through the winter, and we covered different topics of the Legacy Blend, but now we've gone a full, almost growing season because most of those are annuals or biannuals, and they've kind of run their cycle. And we want to discuss the differences in those plants and why we like the diversity and why some of them we like more than others. And so... uh that's what we're going to talk about. And uh, we've got an interesting project going. As I mentioned earlier, um, we've got the hot topic of food plotting without herbicides. Now, I guess before we do that, I want to cover herbicides for our own use. We don't, we're not anti-herbicides. We're not pro-herbicide. I guess we could say we sit in the middle we try to limit our herbicide, and we don't want to go and spray it everywhere because of such, such of uh, so much of our mindset and management with the land is kind of a naturalist standpoint and trying to replicate nature and 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 use nature as our mold of of how we try to manage our land. And obviously, herbicide isn't something that's naturally occurring, um, but in natural in the natural landscape, neither were uh, non-native invasives. Um, so there are ways to combat and say, okay, because uh, for old field management, let's use old field management as a as a um, as an example here. There's so many invasives, non-native fescue or non-native turf grasses that we need to remove, and it's hard to remove them with fire and grazing. Um, so we use herbicide. Uh, usually a one-time treatment of herbicide to knock it out and be done with it. And, and then herbicide shouldn't be used on that, most likely shouldn't be used on that, uh, in that area again. And so we have no problem doing that. But if we're planting something and we have to do an initial spray to kill, and then we have to turn around and spray again, and then another month later we spray again, and it turns into a three to four ch- treatment of herbicide um, within four or five months, then we have issues with it. There, there's something out of balance with that. Um, so most of our herbicide use is maybe a one-time treatment um, before we plant and then another treatment um, halfway through the growing season to try and knock back some of the other, uh, for example, crabgrass or mare's tail or uh, cerisa lespedeza, things like that. So um, that's kind of our, our general standpoint stand we might do um this year we've got we had an interesting development with crabgrass last year um due to mismanagement over the years of lots of plowing lots of disking 
Do you, uh, lots more, of monocultures. Lots of monocultures to where um, crabgrass has become a, a big issue in our food plots. And so this year we're taking it out. We planted we planted soybeans, so our process will most likely be we sprayed um, on most of these food plots on the family farm where a lot of the bad management was going on for years. Um, we basically planted, sprayed, planted our soybeans, and we're going to return in, in probably a month or two after planting and spray again to kill the crabgrass. And then we're going to turn around and plant the Stratton Heritage Blend to create diversity um, and hopefully shade out any crabgrass. But most of the crabgrass should be germinated and growing by that point. So when we spray it, it'll kill it, and then we'll have the Heritage Blend growing until our fall crop is planted. Um, and that's that's pretty much our plan is going to be we're going to have something growing year round in that food plot, um, and so that's a that's a big thing for us uh, to to try and take care of that crabgrass. Now, long term, we won't be planting just the just the beans um, throughout the majority of our food plots. But this year that's, on the family <clears throat> farm, that's what we're doing. Which I find it I've, it's kind of funny that the situation that we're in we're having to battle that situation from through the same methods somewhat of what we, what got us into that mess. We were planting straight soybeans in small food plots and having to, we, we didn't spray because we realized that the other growth was, was protecting the beans and allowing them to grow, which in turn let the crabgrass go to seed and now we have a major crabgrass problem that we're having to battle by planting straight soybeans again. Yes. Yeah. And there's a lot of farmers that would that would uh, that would love to have some crabgrass. You know, there's different varieties of crabgrass, but I know that there's a lot of them that are are planting crabgrass to graze. We unfortunately are not. Crabgrass is one of the worst ones that we find for especially young chicks, quail and turkey chicks. Um, cause it is just a viney turf grass. It's really, really hard for, uh, a small it's, bird. It's just to... so, so thick in that first couple inches of growth. Yeah. I mean, right on the ground, just exactly what you don't want for young colts. Yes. And so we're going to take care of that problem. Long term, there's going to be several of our food plots converted more to natives, um, more of a, a forb heavy native, uh, food plot, um, if you will. And so that's something we need to take care of this problem before we convert it to that. So um, we're going to we're going to do just that. Um, Chad, let's talk a little bit about um, before we go into the her- non herbicide and our different tests. Let's go back to the first food plots and the practices we used. We kind of briefly scanned over, but I want people to understand where we're coming from is in the food plot world is more a trial by air and learning in the school of hard knocks of what not to do and how to, how to <clears> save time, save money, um, and different things like that. I remember uh, the first food plot we ever planted. I remember where it was. Well, it's called old food plot for a reason. That's right. And, um, I remember we used to plant buck forage oats. That was one of the first things we ever planted. It was like when they, well, that was when they first came out. Yeah. And we went in, did what kind of what I was saying. We plowed, disc it up, planted it in that one spot. I think we planted at pretty light rates, if I remember right. Yep. And 
that was long that before true. broadcasting. We realized we needed to plan at heavier rates when we were broadcasting. Yeah, so it was somewhat. I mean, we saw deer in it and thought it was a success. That was back in the days we would go in and saw, if you saw deer tracks in it, we're like, oh man, it's working. The deer are coming in. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all, our problems are solved. We're going to have big bucks everywhere because there was a buck on a bag. That's right. Uh, do you remember, you know, sometimes it was the two bottom plow. We, or I guess it was a disc plow. It looked like a, yes. uh, uh, I don't even know how to explain it. We used to call it an airplane. It was the backwards airplane. It was kind of looked like a big, a big airplane with no wings except for the little uh, wing going north, uh, the dorsal fin of the <laughs> of the airplane on the back, um, and then two big circle uh, discs that were turned perpendicular with the with the motion of the plow to basically just scoop up the scoop up the ground and and dump it back out and and so it was, I mean that thing could turn some dirt. And oh, yeah. still to this day, when I smell dirt, I think of those years of planting food plots where we would, it was a long process. Think about turning a half acre with two rows at a time all the way. And it was so aggressive that then we'd have well, to turn. Like that food plot actually had dirt and not a lot of rock. Yeah. Some of those food plots we planted, you drop the thing and it would just bounce. Yes. The whole way through it was just bouncing along. Yes. And you would turn up a little dirt here and there, but that was our goal was just get a little t- dirt turned up to the disc and get a seed in it. Yep. And so a lot of times we, we always started with the plow um, because the disc wasn't a real aggressive disc. So we had to get aggressive with the plow. We would turn the soil. Then we would turn, come back, and disc multiple ways. So you would do, let's say, north and south. And then you'd go east and west. And then we would broadcast the seed and then take something and drag over the entire food plot to try to cover or, that seed. Or disc it in. Or disc it And in. then drag it. I remember. We, when, did, we, didn't learn the, we didn't learn the drag for a couple of years. Remember, we would just disc. We would just disc it back. Um, and then we would we spray also, miracle Grow on it. <laughs> we, also had to, we also had to use the plow because in those days all we planted were fall plots yep. and it would be where the ground was like concrete because it was so hot and dry yes and then we would turn it and there's actual if you go back on google earth and you're looking at our farm there's there's one year where every food plot had been it, the the aerial image had been done in august and all of our food plots had been done at this point we'd planted probably nine different food plots totaling about four or five acres and by by then too our 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 plantings had adapted we'd went to we started planting soybeans yes in the summers and then laredo hay beans do, most of the time well we started out with hay beans yep well that in was the this, first time in this aerial image what i'm talking about is everything is white all the food plots are like a real creamy white um, because we had adapted to where there was a process to where we had to plow them first, then we had to disc them, and then we had to plant when the rain came. So there were a lot of times where food plots were plowed and disced and then set there for two weeks until we rain baked. came. 
and then we would broadcast and then disc again. And so it was a lot of time. It was almost a two to three week process just to get food plots planted. Um, I guess prepped, then planted. And And by by that time, most of the water, if you've never seen a um, water infiltration or a rain um, simulator test, just Google it or put it in YouTube and, and watch. And so by that point, a lot of the rain we got just ran off the top and down in the woods and down in the creeks. Uh, we or, didn't set... or we would, or in worst case scenario, we would get enough rain to maybe make stuff germinate, and then it would turn off dry again and kill everything, and we would have to go in and disc again and plant again. Yes. It was the worst case scenario for food plotting. And, 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 it, was, and it was all, I mean, generally look at it, it was all monocultures. We were yes. we were also living on the old uh, like magazine hype. You would read something article and, and hear somebody talk about this. Well, like some plant. Oh, it's it's amazing. This yes. is the this is the key, and we would plant nothing but it and some and certain food plots. Purple top turnips was a big one. We yep. still use those today, but man, it was the fad there for a couple of years. Uh, Buck forge oats was another big one. Um, trying to think of some of the other trendy ones that rape was another one that came along. Um, th- there were years, I mean, we went through years cause then we, we started, I remember that the, the year we planted, uh, Kingsville and we planted brassicas, straight brassicas. Cause that's what we read we were supposed to do. And remember those things grew huge. Well, that's when dad was spraying it with miracle grow. Well, he spray he tried to spray the sprayer quit working and he dumped it. Yes. We just dumped it on there, and they were knee-high brassicas, and we thought we had it figured out then, and that, those are still probably, that was the best of the straight brassicas we we ever got. Yep. Timing was perfect. And it was, we had, that was like one of the first few times we planted that food plot, too. Yes. So everything from there, the soil depleted from, from there on. Yep. And that was, we, we went for that for a few years and then that was in the Laredo hay beans. And then we went to the soybeans and kind of had the rotation of soybeans to soybeans to either brassicas or the wheats. And at times we would go through like later in the year and broadcast that into the weak spots of the brassicas. Yep. We would, we would broadcast wheat because it was cheap. Yep. And thought thought we had, you know, we were already starting to dabble a little into some of the agriculture stuff. And we thought we were figuring out a crop rotation. <laughs> remember, do you remember that? Yeah. It was one of those where we thought, well, we've got to rotate. It says we need to rotate stuff. So that's what we're, we're getting. Little did we know we were starting to get into the diversity. We just had it all screwed up. We were still doing monocultures. We just didn't realize it. Yes. And... Then I can't, I was trying to think earlier when you mentioned what we we're going to talk about, I was trying to think the first time we started mixing because it was a while ago Yep, that we really started messing with diversity in the fall. That was, we started really mixing the stuff just out of honestly ease of use. It was easier for us to mix it all and spread it all at the same time. 
that was before we really looked into like Gabe Brown and Ray Archuleta talking about diversity benefits. We just did it out of, it was easier to plan it all at the same time. Yep. And I think, well, not only that, but I remember when we first started mixing, oh gosh, uh, that was probably eight years ago, maybe even 10 years ago when we started doing more of two or three species mixes. So I remember we started planting rape, turnips, cereal rye, and uh, well, and then the the first time that the first time that we could that we found daikon radishes, yeah, you know, they just started to make their way to southern Missouri and the cover crop stuff. Yep, and we we started buying those because we knew our soils. By then, we were already starting to figure out that our soils were getting packed from disking and plowing yeah for almost 15 years of disking and plowing yes yep yep it, i kind of so, felt like we were for for you guys that that are in really fertile soil you're like why why is there a difference why did you notice in just 15 years or 10 years why did you notice that your food plots started getting worse because we've been chisel plowing and disking for years and years and years you guys have massive amounts of topsoil um where it could be multiple feet deep we don't have very much topsoil and it's very rocky and it's not even loam a lot of times we have clay or sandy loam gravelly loam and the nature the nature of our soil with all the rockiness and, and the sand component it leaches our minerals very well yeah a lot of stuff a lot of our stuff leaches really really well to the point where you lose you lose a lot of your nutrients in the soil pretty quick if you're not if you're not planting stuff to keep the nutrient cycling going. And yep. we didn't we didn't know that either. <laughs> yep. And whenever we started figuring this out, I was like, "Wow, this is this is terrible." Um, to a point where we would we had stopped planting some of our food plots because it was like, ah, until we have a disc or uh, until we have a drill, we might as well stop because we're just we're just shooting ourselves in the foot. Let's just let it was, grow back in weeds. And that was some of that. We we started researching no-till. We'd that was we'd already realized that our our planning our plannings were not as great as they could have been. And, it already clicked, and in they our had been in years past. Yeah, something wasn't right, and our quality was going way down. So we'd looked at we'd already been researching no-till, but with a with a Massey Ferguson thirty, you're kind of limited. And that was when we also were trying to, we'd already figured out that we couldn't do straight beans because most of our food plots were half acre and our deer population was at a point where we would plant monoculture soybeans and they would be eaten into the dirt. And remember how many years ago was that before we ever saw any diversity stuff in food plotting? We, that was when we first started researching some of the cover crop stuff, and we started seeing the like ag guys talking about planting the summer cover crops in mixes. Yes. And I think I went to I went to Kansas turkey hunting, or did something, and just decided to go and buy. We talked about it, and it about rode it off. And I happened to just go into where we buy our seed, and it's like. I'm going to buy some. It doesn't cost that. I priced it. I'm like, for a couple of food plots, it's not going to cost that much. And we did some. By then, we'd already, well, I don't know if we had, we had the roller, but 
but it wasn't quite figured out at that time. And I used a big chunk of chain link. We didn't have, we didn't spray it because there was rain coming that, that night. So I didn't have time to plant it with spraying it. And all I did was broadcast it into our, into all of our fall cover stuff that we'd already had. We had the mix of, we had some cereal rye and maybe wheat and oats maybe. I don't know if we had that, all, all of those in the mix. And our brassicas. That was, it was a pretty simple mix, but there was enough growth that I broadcast the seed into that and then just drug it with chain link. That was all we did. We didn't spray. We didn't do anything. And it came in. That was the first year it clicked. We're like, huh, we can do these things without a, without a no-till drill. Yep. Cause I remember like I weather dependent, like obviously we always want to use a no-till drill because you have more of a cushion. Um, there's more of a, a better chance of success with a no-till drill. The issue with, with this broadcasting and, and dragging or rolling is that if you don't get the rain or you get a little bit of rain, but not enough to cause the seed to germinate, then you might you'll be have in a, trouble. You'll have a total failure, yes. most likely. And so you have and a much greater chance, but at the same time, you can still, if especially in the spring, I feel like you get more consistent spring rains for those diversity summer plantings uh, of summer well, annuals than you do with fall. Sometimes the well, fall, if you you're also, late and you don't hit those hurricane rains, you can really be in trouble. You also, in the spring, have a lot more soil moisture to where... If you have, if you've done a cover crop mix in the fall that is growing up and tall, you can drag that over the top and hold it as a mulch and it holds moisture. Yeah. And that, it, you'll have that kind of a greenhouse component to where it holds moisture around your seeds and lets them put a root down. But it's still very dependent upon moisture. Yep. You'll have to have the rain. Yep. That's, it's, it's a, it's a lot bigger gamble, but it can be done. Yes. And that was, that was a long time ago. I I mean, we hadn't seen, there was nothing about that kind of stuff. When we tried that, it was just a complete, oh, we'll see what this, what'll happen. And I've started to see more and more stuff kind of talking about those things. Yep. Yep. For sure. I, uh, and that, that was years. And then, then it kind of developed into, uh, the use of some other annuals for summer, um, the cow peas, the lab lab, the millets, and the sedan grass was the was the big ones. And yeah, I was trying to remember what that for the very first year was. It was sedan grass, soybeans. It was pretty simple, and like I think German millet. I think yeah, German millet, sedan grass, soybeans, and I couldn't remember if buckwheat was in else. there or not. I can't either. But it was a long time ago. <laughs> and, it was a long time ago. And so we planted that, and it was kind of like, boy, that, that worked pretty well. And, and it wasn't – of course, we didn't have herbicide sprayers other than backpack sprayers. So that was a horrible pain. And so, therefore, um, it wasn't something we did on a large scale until we ended up getting uh, – until we started getting a, a – herbicide sprayer and then we ended up getting a utv and then everything started really changing and that was only four years ago or five years ago when a utv got brought into the mix and so uh 
we did some we i mean it, it was a lot more it was a lot more limited but even with the backpack sprayer we did quite a bit from that time on yeah we still did some of them and we had we i mean obviously we talk about the food plots it's we're trying to educate people according to our failures and hope that they don't have them. Yep. But we had multiple failures trying that. Yeah. It may have not been complete failures, but we had some like not the greatest of stands because of lack of rainfall or we would see on the, on the weather forecast that it'd be three days rain and we would plan ahead of that and we might get a 10th of an inch and that was it. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, so anyway, long story short, a lot of experience or a lot of, a lot of failures with, uh, with food plotting. Um, it's going to take, I'm sitting here in my head. We've got several more years before we can say we have more years of successful food plots than we do, um, limited success food plots, um, because of years of plowing and disking. You even think of which... Last year we had the we had decent weather. Two year, the two years before that we had terrible weather, and that hurt us in figuring out. Last year we finally figured out one of our big problems was the crabgrass that we're trying to take care of now. Yep. Because we finally had a decent weather to where we should have had great germination, and it was spotty in places where the crabgrass was so thick, and we realized the allelopathic properties of crabgrass, and that that was hurting us and it could have been a, a component to why we didn't have the greatest the two years before that. Yep. Yep. I, uh, Ooh, that was a lot of, a lot of different, uh, a lot of rundowns and a lot of trials. I had several successes, but also, um, we learned a huge important part and in poor soils, it's even more important to practice, soil health and practices that go with replicating nature and not turning soil um then and and that's always the when we talk about soil health and we talk about uh regenerative ag practices and and you talk about trying to improve improve your um soil health that's one of the biggest questions well why do production crop farmers turn the soil and why do they turn the soil in other places and Illinois gets completely turned up and Nebraska turns their soil and all these people turn the soil. Why, why do we, uh, why do we, why are those guys doing it when food plot guys are saying we need to be no-till drilling or you guys are saying that? Well, in the, when you're looking at quality soil health, there's some pioneers, the Gabe Browns, Ray Archuleta's, um, Dave Brandt is Dave another Brandt one. Dave Brandt is another one, yep. And, uh, and and those guys have guys that they look to that, that weren't putting they weren't putting YouTube videos out, but they were guys that they met at soil conferences. Yes. I mean, I, I've heard we heard we both listened to Gabe Brown's book and it's he mentions multiple guys that he talked to that he learned from. Yep. Yeah. I, and that's here's an interesting I, I can't believe it's taken me this long to get to this, um uh, to to mention this and I have a mentor. I have several guys that I consider mentors, and and some of one of them is, they all come from different backgrounds. But I have one that's in from the farming background, and he said that um, he finds he takes his information from people who don't speak in absolutes because people that speak in absolutes act as if they've learned everything, 
and there's nobody that's humbled themselves that should feel like they know everything, especially when it comes to land. And um, I'm like, you know, I kind of blew I, I my mind to, because I, I was getting ready to say something along the same lines of, you know, <clears throat> you talk like how many years we've done it and we've actually gotten some good ones. We still neither one. We're constantly grabbing more information, trying to learn more. Yes. You can never stop learning. And it's and that's honestly why we went to the ag side and a lot of the stuff that we look to because generally the ag side is not as biased. Yeah. You they're know doing I mean? the, they're doing this from a they're doing this from a financial support and trying to maximize their profits, not try they, to maximize their payment from from product endorsements. Exactly. Uh, going they're going back to that comment though is uh he said that everyone that people that speak in absolutes try to act as if as if they're teaching a class, but really, the different levels of education come down to a guy who may know more is just on a different. He's on a different course than we are, and as in a different college course or a different ed- educational course, to where um, they're learning different things or more advanced things than what we're learning. We may be more on the entry-level courses, and they be, may be more on the uh, um, master class courses. And it kind of set me back. I was like, boy, that is a great way of putting it because, you know, we can think we've figured out so much with land management and food plotting and habitat restoration when really nature can always fool us and throw us a curveball. And so with food plotting, all we really try to do in very simple terms is replicate nature. And that comes down to diversity and not exposing the soil, um, not turning the soil, because nowhere in nature does that happen um, from a natural standpoint. And nowhere in nature do monocultures happen when nature is working as it was intended to work. And so... um, what we do is plant diversity. And so because of all that, now we're going to talk about um, the legacy blend. Let's just talk about the legacy blend, Chad, um, and what we found. And I've had this question more this year than ever before from guys who had planted uh, specifically. Let's just uh, one guy. I had a message just a few days ago from a guy who planted the legacy blend and he asked me, he said, it's so good, should I even worry about planting it or should I just let it grow? And I think it really depends on your goals. But here's the thing. It, depending on your location, whether it's early in the growing season or getting starting to really heat up, if you were to terminate that entire crop, that entire fall blend and plant something and you're later in the season, you're going to have minimal success and you may get a lot of exposed soil if you're disking i would if you if you're one of these if you have to disc i would encourage you to just let the fall blend run its course and the legacy blend from stratton has crimson clover balanza clover bursine clover austrian winter peas triticale winter wheat cereal rye oats radishes purple top turnips rape and another type of uh, hybrid turnip and so 12 species to where cereal rye it's run its course most of the cereal grains have oats 
winter wheat and triticale, kale, they've all ran their course. They're starting to. They're they're beyond palatability and starting to pollinate or put seed on. Yes, and um, the radishes are probably ran their course. Um, the other brassicas have as well. Now you're going to see turnips. They're going to start making seed, and that's one of the issues. If if you let it go to seed, you may have turnips go to seed seed pods open up scatter on the ground and you may get some of this growth out of these in the middle of the summer um i would imagine the summer heat's gonna gonna knock them back where they're not gonna do great um so i'm not too worried about it the ones that should carry the load and and carry you further into the summer are these are these clovers specifically the bursim and the balanza what we're seeing right now, because we have a test plot, because it looked so good, <laughs> because we, we, I mean, it's it's May 26th here, and Chad, you went and looked at food plots today, our test plot, where no herbicides added. The only thing that's been done on that entire acre and a half food plot is drilled soybeans through it. And, and the reason we're drilling th- soybeans through it is because it's a new food plot, um, and there is some noxious weeds, some cerise lespedeza, spotted knapweed in the area. We're trying to make sure we take care of those before we convert it back to something else and or plant more diversity uh, with the heritage blend or a, a native blend. But uh, tell us what you saw. Well, and I, that's, you were kind of touching on it. Seeing what I saw today, because we've, we've checked on it periodically about once a week at least, if not every few days just to see the progression and it honestly excites me to to be able to have one that we let go to maturity like this and just drill the heritage right into it i'll be excited to see what to be able to do that in a food plot because we've seen you know the crimson matures out pretty quick we saw it come on about the time you know crimson crimson's really palatable early early in the spring right there during turkey season it seems like for us that late april early may it's going nuts it was starting to bloom to where it was really good and the others the other two clovers kind of just they were kind of set back and we were like man there's crimson everywhere but i don't see much of the others and then right there towards the end of turkey season all of a sudden we're like man look at the balanza it is going nuts and like you posted videos of balanza and it was like, man, it is unbelievable. And when I went today, the balanza had bloomed and it's starting to fade. And now you're seeing the bursine taken off. And you can see all the brows on the on the bursine now. Mm. I, I got some pictures that I'll, um, you guys will probably post later. And you might see more, but it's just starting to bloom. And now that the balanza has faded, now the deer hammer and the bursine. And it's like, you see that where it's, I mean, and then you guys will maybe end up posting the pictures of, of our buddy David's food plots that he planted. And he planted one in Legacy and one in the Cattlemen's, which is similar, that he grazed twice, two different two-week periods. And, I mean, those things were nuts, how, how much growth and how much, how much they had in them after he'd grazed them, tw- two different two-week periods. Yeah. And it really what you notice in those pictures when we post them is a lot more clovers are, are the what's thriving right now. 
um, the cereal rye and, and all his other stuff got grazed out uh, for the most part, or it ran its course and now it's died um, once it went to seed. And so we've got clover going nuts. And that's where I'm trying to encourage our listeners or people that have reached out that say, man, my fall food plot looks so good, I have a hard time killing it. What should I do? Well, it's not going to look like that a lot longer. But if you don't have a strict game plan of what you're going to plant this spring and and you don't have a no-till drill, t- to me, I feel like no-till drilling in the, in the spring for the summer for the summer months is more is way more important than the fall um, because in the fall you you don't get those high temperatures that you'll get during the summer months obviously and so people have gotten away with disking and not baking the soil by just doing it in the fall but in the summer you better be on top of your game or you can really kill some soil health and so I would encourage our listeners if if you're in that boat it's okay to let it to let your fall crop carry you through and and take you a good ways into the summer but what you can expect is a lot of change to occur it's not going to be a green food plot all the way through summer till fall you will see clovers really peak here in the next month and then you may see some reseeding from your clover crimson clover may start growing back if you get some rain um, because it went to these are uh, annual clovers that have gone to seed and then if you go in and you and you do some bush hogging, I wouldn't encourage this, but if you do that or you just go in and kind of rake it over, you're going to all the seed that crimson clover that's in the head from this uh, in the seed head, it's going to scatter on the ground. You may get some rain, and it may start growing again. Same thing could be true for balanza and bursim a little bit later in the summer once it goes to seed. But you have to be prepared to see it change and there's going to be some weeds come back. Um, and there could be some weeds you don't want to see in your food plots, as in mare's tail, pigweed, different things like that, Cerisa lespediza. That's where I would encourage you, if you do decide to let your fall crop go through the summer and not plant a summer crop, then be prepared. You may need to spray, spot spray some of your noxious weeds to make sure they don't go to seed in your food plots. Um, yeah, because... And that was the other thing I noticed. <clears throat> there was a lot of black-eyed Susans in our in the in the one that we didn't spray, and the Is deer are still hammering that. Oh man, they love that stuff. Yes, um, and so I think and and there's going to be a lot of ragweed that comes up, and we know that because there was ragweed in it last year in places that, um, in in that kind of window of not getting sprayed, and so. Which is great. I love common ragweed. People know that, and so. It it is you just have to train your eye, just like just like it said in the Gabe Brown book. If you want to do if you want to make small changes, change the way you do things. And I may butcher this. What was it, Chad? If you want to if you want to make change, small changes. You remember? If you want to make small changes, change the way you do things. If you want to make major changes, change the way you look at things. Yeah, change the way you see things. Yes. Yep. Um, I think uh, it's definitely uh, something to keep in mind. And so, I and I think it's great if you let your fall food plot just go to just kind of set fallow and run its course completely 
and you let nature run its course, you're going to get some weeds in there. Just monitor, make sure you don't get any of the noxious weeds, the almost, uh, the invasive weeds. Um, as long as you keep them out, it can be a wonderful, wonderful thing. All the cereal, the cereal rye, the wheat, the oats is going to go to seed head, and it's great food for, for the birds as well as the deer. Um, the clovers are going to provide great forage into the summer um, until they run their course, and they're going to, they're going to provide great blooms for the for the pollinators. Um, same can be true for the purple top turnips. But it may sit there for a month or two, and you think, "Man, I'm really messed up." But understand, you left all that growth to cover that soil and keep it um, keep it shielded and armored for the whole summer, rather than disking it up and and taking the chance of getting dry, not getting a great summer food plot, and having that soil just bake. That's that's why I'm anxious to 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 get one on almost a rotation of going from the legacy to the heritage, where you just drill into it. Yes. You don't spray it. You don't do anything except for maybe spot spray and stuff that you need to. But if you can do that, where you you drill you drill this our heritage into the into the legacy, and then turn around because we know we can drill the the legacy in the fall into the heritage. We we did that last year. Yeah. Without spraying, we just drilled it right in, and it came up right underneath. So you never, either from terminating your crop, you never have that lull period where it's not offering anything. There's always something in it. I mean, to me, that's the benefit is there's always something there. Instead of disking it under or that, there's a lull period where there's nothing there. I mean, it was, I know you guys felt the same way. It kind of made you sick to be going through and spraying all that stuff with all the bees and butterflies and everything. I mean, the, the amount of insects that were in those food plots was incredible. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about food plotting with no herbicide. We've got about 10 minutes to wrap this up. So our test experiment, acre and a half, no herbicide. The last time it received herbicide was last August. So we are going to test various ways. And here's the biggest question of all. We're planting a species, a, a diverse species. Most of the time it's 12, 8 to 12 species. What is the problem? What ha- Okay, a couple questions. What happens if we don't spray it and we just let it grow all the way through the summer? We just let it run its complete life cycle. What happens? And I'll ask every single person who's ever planted a food plot. Most people won't know. They won't tell you what happens because... We've never let it do that. <laughs> We've always just no, killed it. We're impatient. We, and, want, we want to see fresh new growth. And so here's the question. Why, what happens to it if we just let it run its course? I've asked that question to so many people and nobody knows. And and that kind of goes with the, we had this conversation with Kyle and Frank. Uh, Kyle and Frank, I almost, I almost, uh, made Frank mad there and called him Kyle and Frank Hedges, but Kyle Hedges and Frank Long Carriage. Um, we ask that question a lot because it seems like there's a lot of times where we do something just because that's the way we were told it has to be done. And so we never ask that question, but why? And so we're sitting here now going, but why do we always have to spray it or terminate it? What happens if we just let it run its course? I know what purple top turnips do. We know what triticale and oats, 
wheat, and cereal rye do. We know what crimson clover does and rape. We pretty much know what all of it does in when we planted it in monocultures. What's going to happen when we let it all go in diversity? Get a pretty good, good idea that halfway through the summer it's going to run its course and it's not going to be a huge problem. Now the ones that I'm worried about could be turnips and rape. But turnips and rape are the ones that that are a concern to me. But they, they if you've got another crop coming in behind it, they're not going to have to feed it. That's right. And so that you're taking a cool season plant and it's going into the summer. So if you have any kind of warm season plant there, it's going to outcompete it. So our question has been, what happens if you just let it grow? Now it may stunt the beans. We we've never done this, and I don't. I'm not sure if anybody has. We're going to just see what happens when you drill beans into it. And it may stunt the beans and, and it may rob nutrients and moisture from it for a while. But at some point, it's going, to, it's going to run out of fuel and it's going to run out of steam. And it should be opened up for the beans to, to grow. We're, follow along because this is a, something we're really interested in. Another thing we're going to do, because there's been this whole how do you terminate without herbicide, there's different things that people are doing. Um, but the question is, what's the cheapest, most practical way to terminate a crop without herbicide? I know a lot of guys, when they look at the various tools that are out there, they say, well, I can buy a lot of herbicide for the price of that. Um, the crimper being one of them, um, the, the seed seed shredder being another one that's used in the crop world or in the agriculture world. For us, I'm going, what? In our area, we're a little bit different than a lot of people. We don't see the, the big farm machinery, but we see other t- tips and tricks that people use. So when we see crops planted, corn, uh, even soybeans, um, oats and wheat planted, a lot of times they're not used for, they're not cut to go into the crop production or grain production. They're cut for silage to feed livestock. And so I've driven by a pile of fields this spring that were planted in some sort of cereal grain and they got mowed and bailed up. And that yep. begged the question, <clears throat> well, when they mowed that, it was just starting to form seed heads and pollinate. And I don't see that stuff growing back. And well, almost everybody's got a bush hog or a mower. And so... We both also talked about hearing, and hearing Gabe Brown talk about how he seeded. And all he did was an intense grazing. Yes. And that's another tip and another tool we're going to use in the future. I think a lot of people are making it a lot more complicated than what it needs to be. Yeah. And, and I think so watching all these fields that just get mowed and, and it never growing back, we're going to do part of our, our test plot in just mowing. So we're going to go back up there. What stage is, where's the cereal rye at, Chad? It was it was pollinating last week. Is it already starting it's, to mature, or is it still tall, pollinating? It's, it's about done. Okay. Now, the, uh, some of the other stuff is pollinating. And that's, that's what we get into with the, where we talk about the crimping and stuff like that, is if you're doing high-diverse mixes, when, when are you supposed to crimp? Exactly. Uh, that's a I good mean, question. You're supposed, got, to, you're supposed to do uh, crimp during a pollination stage, but if... We're trying to, I would, in ranking of crimping versus planting diversity, I'm going to go way more. I'll, I'll put diversity over almost anything else in food plotting. 
And then that begs the question, or you got to ask the question, okay, how can you crimp a diverse blend because they all pollinate at a different stage for the most part? And then it's going, okay, well, then you're going to have to crimp multiple times. And then how much fuel are you using? And and most of the crimpers aren't big, so um, you're going to have well, to go over a five-foot swath. How effective are they on all of the species as well? Yeah. That's what we're running into and, and, and looking at a lot of stuff. So we're, we're trying to figure out other ways of other ways of terminating them. That's right. And so we're going to try just – we've got multiple strips we're going to plan, but uh, there's going to be um, – some mowing and then just letting it run its course, and so I hope everybody follows along because it'll. I'll be. I'm so interested. That's the plot I'm most interested in this fall or this summer to see just how well um, it does and just what happens to the legacy blend as it runs its course. Yes, and I and, think it's going to be and awesome. And then we'll also this fall be doing the same kind of experiments with the heritage. Yeah. Yep. I mean that's. Because so all of our food plots are going to get heritage plant, or almost all of them, seventy five percent are going to get planted in heritage here in the coming weeks. As we um, have taken care of our crabgrass, we're going to drill heritage into all this stuff. And so this spring, and and heritage is one of those great ones because um, there's so many species in there, especially the sun hemp, the milo, and the millets, which can be planted a lot later in the summer and still have great production out of them. And so we'll have great growth this fall that we're just going to turn around and drill right through it and see what happens. And then with the heritage mix, we all we have the benefit this fall of there's a there's a God gives us a terminator in the fall where we can frost it. Yes. We can drill we can drill into it and then let the let the cool season our legacy mix be growing and then when it frosts it's going to kill everything in the heritage mix. And let the legacy come on. Yep. Yep. So. Absolutely. Well, I hope everybody goes and checks out our YouTube channel. We're starting to follow along and post about um, post about our, our test plots and different things we're doing. Um, and well, is, I mean, we kind of touched on it earlier, but this is – it's still a learning process for us as well. Yeah. I mean, all of this is experiments for us to learn to benefit ourselves. Yeah. I mean, we're going to be learning just as much as everybody else. We don't claim to know everything. Nope, absolutely not. Um, we do know a lot of a bad ways of planting food plots, though. <laughs> <laughs> a lot. And we know a lot, a lot of, of really ways. good ways, too, though. So um, hopefully everybody can uh, can enjoy it. Check out our YouTube channel, Land and Legacy. Also, our Facebook page. We'll be posting the videos on there as well. A um, lot of different things happening. A lot of great things coming up. As you guys heard last week, we have new consultants. So it's not just Matt and I anymore. We have Kyle and Frank specializing in upland bird management. So if you're interested in quail, prairie chickens, um, doves, give us a shout. Info at landandlegacy.tv. Chad, thanks for coming on. Anytime. All right, guys. Hopefully you enjoyed it, and we'll catch you next week. Yeah.